Welcome to the Engines of Texana, Episode 10, The Texas Love Triangle. I'm Brandon Seal. It was summer in San Antonio in 1966, and I know you're tired of me starting episodes this way, but this is an important fact of life in Texas. It was hot. Which is why air conditioning from a couple episodes ago was such a big deal, and which I'm guessing is why Herb Kelleher and his client Rollin King had chosen to meet for drinks at the bar of the St. Anthony Hotel, the world's first fully air-conditioned hotel. Kelleher and King were there to talk aviation, appropriately enough, given San Antonio's long history in the field. The first military flight had taken place at Fort Sam Houston in 1910, and the first U.S. aircraft deployed in military operations had left from San Antonio to chase Pancho Villa in 1916, the same year that the Stinson sisters had launched their flight school on the city's south side at a spot that remains the second oldest continuously operated civilian airfield in the country. Nearly every military aviator in U.S. history up to that point had come through San Antonio as well, through Brooks or Kelly or Lackland or Randolph Air Force bases including no less than Charles Lindbergh himself. The first Oscar award had actually gone to a movie called Wings, which was filmed in San Antonio and which had premiered at the newly air-conditioned Texas Theater on Houston Street, just a few blocks away from the St. Anthony, where in fact the entire cast and crew had stayed during filming. And yet despite the fact that King and Kelleher were meeting here at an epicenter of aviation history, it didn't mean it was easy to make money in the aviation business as King was lamenting now to Kelleher. King had originally founded his Wild Goose Flying Charter Service to cater to Texas hunters, a price-insensitive market if there ever was one, but there were only so many folks that you could fly to Eagle Pass to shoot deer, and his business was failing. So King was meeting Kelleher that day, an attorney, to help him liquidate his company. But King wasn't giving up entirely on aviation. He was just tired of going after the charter business. He wanted to go after the bigger market of moving passengers between major population centers like Houston, Dallas, and San Antonio. And yet access to the very limited number of gates at those big city airports was controlled by the big established domestic carriers, the Eastern Airlines, the TWAs, the Pan Ams, the Braniffs, the Texas Internationals, the Continentals, to name a few, who had no interest, by the way, in letting in smaller, more nimble competitors. And yet a couple of years running a flight service had shown King that what the big domestics charged for tickets was way out of line with what it actually cost to move passengers around. Something didn't add up. The problem was that by the 1960s, the aviation industry in the United States had become a syndicated oligopoly, thanks to the federal government's role in setting ticket prices and allocating specific routes to specific carriers. Now, to be fair, it wasn't like the feds had corrupted a perfectly well-functioning private market. They had, quite frankly, created this market, starting in 1925 with the Airmail Act. Initially, 90% of the revenue for U.S. airlines came from carrying the mail for the U.S. government. It wasn't until 1938 that passenger fares actually exceeded mail revenues on domestic carriers, which was the same year that the Federal Civil Aeronautics Board was formed. Unfortunately, the CAB's original charge to keep ticket prices from getting too high morphed into an implicit guarantee to the airlines that their profit margins would never get too low either. In a regulated market without dynamic price signals, the only way for airlines to grow was to buy routes from each other, to consolidate. Which just made the problem worse. 
1949, there were 20 domestic and international trunk carriers in the United States. But by 1975, there were only 11. Less options, of course, led to higher prices for travelers, which the CAB routinely approved because the carriers were always able to show how their costs, too, were increasing. And yet it was a bit circular because the whole reason their costs were increasing was because the airlines knew they could pass those increases through to the customers. There was no incentive for airlines to control their costs or to try to operate their fleets effectively. As proof of this, average flights in those years were only 49% full. And planes were operated on average only about seven hours a day, which is a situation that no manufacturing plant manager with large fixed costs would have ever allowed. In exchange for these high prices and guaranteed profits, the airlines were obligated, theoretically, to fly some non-profitable routes as well as the big profitable ones, which mostly meant routes to small cities, and this was meant to help smaller cities integrate themselves into the larger American economy. Over time, however, the big carriers managed to find ways to shed most of their least profitable routes. By 1973, fully 25 Texas cities that had been served by airlines in 1948 had been entirely disconnected from the air grid, some of them never to return. Despite being protected from competition, despite having the profitability of their routes guaranteed, despite industry consolidation, and despite the elimination of many of their unprofitable routes, CAB records reveal that not a single one of the major domestic carriers was profitable in 1970. How could this be? Even when the CAB began to chase profitability on behalf of the carriers in the face of the Arab oil embargo, with a 5% fare increase in 1973 and a 6% increase in 74 and then a second 4% increase in the second half of 74, it still didn't get the big airlines out of the red. King and Kelleher weren't so arrogant as to believe that they could play the same game better than the big boys. Contrary to later depictions, Neither King nor Kelleher were cowboys. They were both astute businessmen. King was a Harvard MBA and Kelleher was a graduate of NYU Law School. No, but they could tell that the big airline industry was screwed up. And they believed that they had found a way to work around the regulatory moat that the airlines had built around their space. If they could fly routes that were entirely within Texas's borders, they could avoid the Federal Civil Aeronautics Board entirely. This wasn't an original idea. A wholly intrastate airline was already operating in California, the only other state with enough people and enough distance to really make it worthwhile. The airline was called Pacific Southwest. The big domestic carriers hated Pacific Southwest, and they fought it at every turn. But it had survived for more than a decade now, thanks in large part to the assertion of jurisdiction over intrastate air travel by the California Public Utilities Commission. The existence of effective state regulation over a wholly intrastate activity kept the Civil Aeronautics Board and the influence of the big domestic carriers at bay. King grabbed a fresh cocktail napkin off the St. Anthony Bar and drew out a triangle, labeling each vertex Houston, Dallas, and San Antonio, and he pushed it back across the bar top to Herb Kelleher. The idea explained itself. The three largest cities in the state connected by cheap, frequent, and direct daily flights. San Antonio's hemisphere was scheduled to begin in less than 24 months. On April 6, 1968, the 155th anniversary of the first Texas Declaration of Independence, and it promised to bring millions of visitors to the state. If King and Kelleher got to work now, they decided, 
they could be in service in time for Hemisphere. On March 15, 1967, King and Kelleher incorporated Air Southwest, the name a direct nod to their plans to emulate Pacific Southwest. They even signed up some of Pacific's original investors. In November of 1967, they filed with the Texas Aeronautics Commission for their charter to operate. In their charter, they promised to, quote, provide an entirely new type of commuter-oriented service, characterized by high flight frequency, low fares, intense promotional activity, simplified ticketing, express check-in and baggage handling, high reliability in meeting schedules, all non-stop flights, and single-class service, end quote. In short, everything that the big airlines then operating in Texas weren't providing. They would reduce costs by eliminating frills, no meals, no connections, which made the logistics of booking flights at single call centers easy, and no cargo, only passenger service, which meant they needed less terminal and hangar space. They proposed starting with 18 flights per day, eight from Dallas to Houston, four from Houston to San Antonio, and six from Dallas to San Antonio. The three most active airlines in Texas, Braniff, Texas International, and Continental, were determined, however, to make sure that Southwest never took off. They opposed Southwest's charter application with the Texas Aeronautics Commission, arguing that unless Air Southwest could prove that existing air service in Texas had failed, whatever that meant, then their proposed new service couldn't be initiated. But Kelleher was prepared with a legal rebuttal. He had found an analogy in Texas banking law, which made explicit that new bank charter seekers didn't have to prove that nearby banks had failed, only that new banks wouldn't harm the level of banking services provided to that community, which they of course never did. On the contrary, multiple banks created more competitive banking options and more banking services in those markets. And again, it's an acknowledgement of how successful Southwest Airlines has been in changing public thinking about these things that their arguments today seem self-evident. But it's also an acknowledgement of how deeply woven the premises of the Texas frontier regulatory model are now woven into the fabric of our society. Listen closely to the threefold charge that was given to the Texas Aeronautics Commission in 1961. They were charged to, quote, protect, promote, and develop aeronautics, end quote. It was the old Spanish frontier irrigation model, regulation and promotion of the same industry by the same body. And it stands in stark contrast to the Civil Aeronautics Board and even to the California State Public Utilities Commission approach. The classic Anglo-American model, as represented by the CAB and the California PUC, was, okay, we'll grant you a little monopoly, a certificate of convenience and necessity, they call it, but in exchange, we get to make sure you don't make too much money. In practice, however, this often ends up simply guaranteeing that the regulated party never has to lose money either, and all incentives for efficiency are removed. The old frontier model arose under a different set of circumstances. Located far from centers of power, people of the frontier more often felt the consequences of bureaucracy rather than the benefits. Complaints against bad policy often fell on deaf, distant ears, and mandates to protect certain classes of economic actors often devolved into taxes on the non-protected class in the form of artificially high prices. This was maybe the core economic complaint of free-trading Mexican federalists in 1813, 1835, and 1838, go back to our podcast seasons 1, 2, and 4 respectively for reference here. By contrast, the frontier model charged regulators with promoting the activity that they regulated in addition to making sure it was done responsibly. This is an uncomfortable pairing in the Anglo-American tradition, 
but I think Texas history gives it some context. Frontier Texas communities always struggled to attract capital, so focusing on limiting the returns on that scarce capital seemed self-defeating. And if the trade-off to limiting profits was that you had to grant many monopolies to well-placed friends of power, much less guarantee their profit margins, well, that seemed just outright unholy to a borderlander who always had to scrap to make ends meet. So it should come as no surprise that the Texas Aeronautics Commission refused to endorse the established carrier's oligopoly on the market. And on February 20th, 1968, they approved Southwest's application. But the incumbents didn't give up without a fight. Braniff, Texas International, and Continental sued the Texas Aeronautics Commission in state district court and got an injunction preventing them from issuing Southwest their charter. Southwest appealed the injunction, but in March of 1969, the Texas State Court of Civil Appeals upheld the big boy's injunction. Kelleher appealed again, this time to the Texas Supreme Court, having now made the issue a bit of a personal crusade, at one point carrying the legal bills for the fledgling company, which would incur over $530,000 in legal expenses before it ever flew its first route. At the Texas Supreme Court, however, Kelleher and Southwest Airlines finally prevailed. And after the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear any more about the case, on June 18, 1971, Captain Emilio Salazar piloted the first flight from Dallas Love Field to San Antonio International, only three years and two months later than Rollin King and Herb Kelleher had originally anticipated. Without detracting from their brilliance and tenacity, you need to acknowledge, too, that Southwest Airlines benefited from a lot of good luck. Almost their entire stable of pilots came from another small airline that went bankrupt just as Southwest was starting up. Also, the Arab oil embargo and rising fuel prices put immense pressure on the larger domestic carriers, which were already loaded down with debt, which actually led them to a series of canceled equipment orders, which Southwest was able to take advantage of. American Airlines and Boeing effectively seller-financed Southwest's first $20 million of capital purchases when they found they couldn't follow through on some of their orders including the purchase of Southwest's first four brand-new 737s. The Boeing 737 carried only one-third as many passengers as the more glamorous 747, but it also only cost one-third as much to operate as well, and it better suited Southwest's high-frequency, short-duration flight schedule. It also helped that Southwest quickly became a darling of the Texas political class, which is attributable in some part to the family connections of Kelleher's wife, Joan Negley, and in other parts, to the inclusion of folks like Texas Governor Dolph Briscoe amongst their early investors. This political cover was important for strengthening the Texas Aeronautic Commission's backbone when the established carriers tried to get them to at least set ticket prices on Southwest new routes. In contrast to the California PUC, whose regulated rates increased between 43 and 70 percent in the years from 1971 to 74 in the midst of the Arab oil embargo, the Texas Aeronautics Commission stayed out of the price-fixing game and Texas consumers were rewarded by rapidly falling prices and the cheapest airfare in the nation. During these early years, Southwest embraced their underdog persona and became known for their bombastic marketing that played on their base at Dallas's Love Field, calling their routes Love Lines and their three destinations the Love Triangle and their famous stewardesses their Lovelies. These Lovelies, dressed in bright orange-knit tops, red hot pants, and knee-high white boots, which somehow came across as more playful than sleazy. Quote, professionalism can be worn lightly, end quote, Herb Kelleher maintained, 
even as Southwest operated in a high-stakes and humorless industry that wanted nothing more than to see them fail. The big airlines' continuing legal challenges against Southwest proved to be such a financial drain on the company that the young upstart was forced to sell one of its four planes to cover court costs, which of course famously led to the 10-minute turnaround, a truly revolutionary initiative that saw Southwest perfect the art of landing, deplaning, cleaning, boarding, and taking off a plane in 10 minutes or less at each destination. Soon, Southwest was covering as many routes with three planes as they had been with four, and as many routes as it would have taken the big carriers twice as many planes to serve. The big domestic carriers started to get desperate. They denied Southwest access to their joint credit card and booking system, which is why you still won't find Southwest Airlines on sites like Expedia or Kayak. Southwest, instead, developed their own booking system and used the savings from not being on the joint sites to pay travel agents higher commissions and to charge passengers lower fares. When the big carriers finally did drop their prices to try to undercut Southwest, Southwest responded by offering their customers a choice. They could pay the cheaper fare offered by their competitors, or they could pay full fare and get a free bottle of whiskey. Given that most travel was still businessmen on expense accounts, businessmen happily paid full freight and walked home with a bottle of liquor after each flight, making Southwest the largest liquor distributor in the state for a brief period. The big airlines then started to get really nasty. They began to hoard fuel at airports and to push Southwest flights to the least desirable gates, which led to Southwest seeking out secondary airports like Hobby in Houston and, of course, Dallas Love. In a way, it was competitors' underhanded tactics rather than any larger strategic vision that pushed Southwest to adopt their point-to-point model instead of a more traditional hub-and-spoke design. That is, instead of routing all traffic through major airports en route to their final destinations, Southwest flew direct between mid-sized and secondary airports. Which all just infuriated the big boys even more. (laughs) Ultimately, in order to further hamstring Southwest's route offerings, the big airlines promoted no less than an act of Congress, the famous Wright Amendment, to prevent Southwest from offering long-range flights from Dallas. It eventually got so bad that in 1975, Braniff and Texas International were indicted for conspiracy under the Sherman Antitrust Act for colluding to drive Southwest Airlines out of business. And yet, by then, it was too late. Too late for Braniff and Texas International, that is. Because by 1976, Southwest was carrying 70% of all passengers in the Love Triangle. By 1979, Southwest was serving 11 Texas cities. And true to Kelleher's predictions and in defiance of the warnings of the domestic carriers, total air passengers in Texas had skyrocketed. In 1975, there had been 1,100,000 total passengers flown between Texas cities. By the end of 1978, three years later, that number had grown to 4 million. And 3.5 million of them had flown on Southwest. Southwest had democratized the Texas skies and been rewarded with almost 90% market share. In every market that Southwest Airlines entered, fares fell and the number of flights increased. By 1978, even Congress couldn't ignore what was going on in Texas, and Congress passed the Airline Deregulation Act, effectively dismantling the Civil Aeronautics Board, which petitioned for its own dissolution in 1983. This was all within 12 years of Southwest's first flight. It was an absolutely epic change of political attitudes that was pretty unprecedented. 
But the results have been so unequivocally positive for consumers in terms of increased flight options and decreased fares that even when they're complaining about flight cancellations or the lack of decent meals, no one would really seriously consider going back to the old model of air regulation. Well, no one except maybe for the old domestic airlines, most of whom didn't survive. Braniff declared bankruptcy in 1982, was resurrected with a clean balance sheet in 1984, but then went bankrupt again for good in 1989. Southwest's two other major Texas competitors, Texas International and Continental, merged in 1982, then went bankrupt in 1983, emerged in 1986 only to be bought out by United Airlines, which today still technically operates under Continental's operating certificate. Most of the other major domestics disappeared or consolidated. Eastern, TWA, Pan Am. Delta, another airline which got its start out of Dallas, has survived. And so has American Airlines, which in 1979 moved its headquarters to Fort Worth in the new DFW airport. and is today the largest airline in the U.S. at something like 165 million passengers in 2021. But coming in second at 123 million passengers that same year is the only major airline in the country never to have declared bankruptcy, Southwest Airlines. In fact, setting aside its first two years, Southwest boasted 47 years of consecutive annual profits, a streak ended only by COVID. And more so than the integrated circuit, Southwest Airlines' story does seem to be inextricably Texan. The aviation industry's disproportionate presence in the state seems to confirm this, too. Today, 10% of all the aerospace jobs in the U.S. are in Texas. And aerospace is arguably the single largest employer in the state, depending on how you categorize the industry. Add to that the Air Force's many missions here, the fact that the state has more public airports than any other state, and the fact that something like 63,000 Texans today hold pilot's licenses, your humble narrator included. Maybe it's something about the immensity of the state. We've seen how distance and remoteness have informed so many other factors of Texas's development. Or maybe it's the fact that the pilot, all alone in the open sky, appeals to the same part of the soul that the idealized cowboy on the open range does. Why else did Jeff Bezos feel the need to throw on a cowboy hat after he touched down from his brief space flight? And speaking of space, is it a coincidence that all three of the major private initiatives trying to conquer space are launching from Texas soil? Bezos' Blue Origin and Van Horn, Elon Musk's SpaceX from Boca Chica, and Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic at Spaceport in, fine, technically New Mexico, but it's real damn close to Texas, and frankly, that seems to be the one that's going to get rolled up first. To say nothing of NASA and its 3,200 employees, 100-plus astronauts, etc. at Johnson Space Center in Houston, which you might recall was the first word spoken by man from the moon. Although Texas critics will contest that point. They will tell you that technically, the first words spoken from the moon were, quote, contact light, okay, engine stop, end quote. And then the line, Houston, tranquility base here, the eagle has landed. So fine, Houston was the sixth word, if you insist on including the five words on the astronaut's landing checklist. I kind of roll my eyes at this, because when Houston folks are boasting about Houston being the first word uttered from the moon, what they're really bragging about is Texas's outsized contribution to flight generally. And that is undisputable. Could it have only happened in Texas? Maybe not, but it did. And this bothers people. It's why coastal folks always seem inordinately giddy when Southwest Airlines does stumble, as they did on December 26, 2022. For an airline that had survived years of legal harassment, the September 11th attacks, and COVID, it was an embarrassment to say the least when they had to cancel 70% of their flights, which represented something like 90% of all flight cancellations that day, 
for a rather mundane winter storm. In this case, Southwest's point-to-point model left them vulnerable in ways that the hub-and-spoke carriers weren't. Because once the snow had cleared at the hub airports for the other carriers, their crews and equipment resumed normal service. But Southwest crews got stranded in different places than their planes did. Before the news cycle moved on to other issues, this briefly became very public validation for all critics that Texanity shouldn't work, that it couldn't work, that the widely touted benefits of airline deregulation, deregulation frontier Texas style that is, needed to be walked back. But I don't think most people would be willing to go back to a time when air travel was the preserve of the business traveler and the super wealthy. Three times as many passengers in the U.S. fly today as did in 1978. And they pay almost 50% less, adjusted for inflation, even as consolidation in the industry in the last decade threatens to undermine some of those gains. Now, I think Southwest has become a bit of a punching bag for the rest of the United States' love-hate triangle with Texanity. Critics of airline deregulation from the media centers on the coasts increasingly sound a little like Texans did a century ago, railing against the railroads that were making their state prosperous. The problem for these people isn't so much what the airlines are doing. It's the fact that they aren't from where we're from. That's a theory anyway. But I don't think it's unfair to say that airline deregulation was Texas's gift to the nation. The product of centuries of wrestling with the best ways to manage distance and energy density and economic activity far from the centers of power and finance. But in some ways... So, too, was the deregulation of the electrical markets that swept the U.S. two decades later, with decidedly more mixed results. And if we're going to call out outsiders for their petty resentments of Texan successes, it means we probably have to be willing to reckon honestly with Texan shortcomings. And nowhere in recent memory was Texanity's vulnerability displayed more clearly than during 2021's Winter Storm Uri. On the next and final episode of the Engines of Texanity. Thank you for listening. This season is brought to you by the 11th Street River House in Bandera, Texas. Sort of. My wife and I have dreamed for years about owning a place in Bandera, and we finally bought a house there last year. Four blocks from the bars, three blocks from the Frontier Times Museum, with 120 feet of Medina River frontage, and a collection of historic Texas maps on the wall, curated by yours truly, It's a great place to spend a weekend and to sort of indirectly support this podcast. Look it up under 11th Street River House on Airbnb or on VRBO. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. Stephen Bennett also composed and performed the theme music. You can find more about Stephen at info at nosomedia, N-O-S-O-media.com. David Moore designed the cover art for this season. You can find him at illustrationonline.com. For more information on our sources and other projects, please check out www.brandonseal.com.